0: Good morning! You know, the past uh, several months, if you've been following along in the news, maybe the Christian news, we've seen the death of some very prominent Christian leaders. Back in April, uh, Dr. Charles Stanley, who pastored the First Baptist Church of Atlanta for nearly 50 years, uh, passed away at the age of 90. About a month later in May, Harry Reader, who pastored a large, prominent church in Alabama, or as Forrest Gump would say, Alabama. Um, he, passed, he was killed in a car accident at the age of 75. And then a week later, uh, Tim Keller, probably the most influential Christian leader in the past 30 years, died at the age of 72 of pancreatic cancer. And probably in the past year in your own life. Someone who was influential in your Christian faith has passed away, has gone to be with the Lord. Is that true? Yeah, probably. It's probably true for most of us. And what's interesting is the topic of death and dying is the great unmentionable in our culture. Sex used to be the great unmentionable in our culture. But that's gone by the wayside. And so the new great unmentionable in our culture is the topic of death. And that's even true. That attitude even permeates the church today. Because we hardly, within churches, within Christian churches and sermons, you hardly hear the topic about how how to die well. We rarely talk about that. You'll hear sermons about how to live your best life now, but you'll hardly ever hear a sermon on how to die radiantly. Listen to Dr. Lauren Winner. She is a professor at Duke Divinity School and an excellent author. She writes this. She says, For Christians, in most times and places, death has been a routine part of life. But during the last century, Americans have embraced an unprecedented denial of death. An unprecedented evasion of death. We no longer allow people to say that they are dying. Rather, we tell them that they are battling an illness. Far from encouraging the perilously ill to recognize the imminence of their death, we encourage the sick to fight death, but not to prepare for it. Some would say, she goes on, some would say this evasion of death is an improvement. I would say... Our avoidance of death, far from being in advance, is false, costly, and alienating. The church, she goes on, we, the church, need to recover the art of dying. We need to reacquaint ourselves with death. We need to help people die well. We need to allow dying Christians to be just that, dying Christians, who can rail against, but also prepare for, death. And you know, she's absolutely right. And death, though we don't want to talk about it, is a relevant topic for us to consider, given the fact that there is a 100% mortality rate in the human race. And also, given the fact that life expectancy in America is down to its lowest number in the past 25 years. Did you know that? I was reading, this is how morbid I am. Um, I was reading this past week, if you take uh, a 24-hour period and you you divvy it up like a clock, a, a clock and you use the uh, age of death, if you're 45, which is my age, midnight would be the time of death, 45, it's 5.48 p.m. And I read that and I thought, oh no, that's... No, 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 let's go back to 2.25 p.m. or noon. If you're 65, it's 11 o'clock. Good morning, how you doing? (laughs) So, while it may not be... A topic we want to talk about. It may not be a topic we want to think through. It's absolutely critical for us to consider how to live well and how to die radiantly. And today in our text, we're going to see the patriarch, the last of the patriarchs, Jacob, as he prepares to face death. So turn with me. Genesis chapter 47. Genesis chapter 47 is where we're going to be. And as you're turning, you should know that we're gonna work all the way through the, we're gonna end the book of Genesis this morning. I promise. I really do. I, I promise. We're gonna, we're gonna wrap up the book of Genesis, um, today. So let me give you a little bit of backstory as we, as you're turning, uh, where we're at in the story of Joseph. We've been, uh, tracing Jacob's family, particularly Joseph, for the last seven weeks. And Joseph's life, a lot like your life and a lot like my life, it's been filled with ups and downs. There's been some gloriously high moments, and then there's been some really dark, deep, hard moments. And uh, when we last looked into Joseph's life, he does three things. And just to kind of set the stage for where we're going today, remember the three things that he does. First of all, he reconciles with his brothers. Remember, the famine was going on, and uh, it was so severe that the brothers had to travel up from Canaan to Egypt to buy some grain. And they don't know that their brother Joseph is actually the prime minister of Egypt. And they don't recognize him, of course, because he's adopted all the culture and all the looks of uh, an Egyptian. But he recognizes them. And so what he does is he puts them through a series of tests to bring forth uh, a conviction of heart, a conviction of their sin, and then to bring forth a change of their heart, which looks harsh when you first read it, but it's absolutely the right method. Because over time, what happens is they're convicted of their sin. They, they speak about it. And then Judah, the change of heart happens. Judah steps up and he offers to take the place and bear the burden of his brother, of his brother Benjamin. And it's the first mention of the theme of substitution within the scriptures. And at that moment, when Judah steps up and says, I'll take his place. I'll bear his burden. At that moment, Joseph knows that his brothers have been transformed. And what he does next is so significant. And when we read the accounts, oftentimes we just blow right by it. But what he does next is so significant. Well, what does he do? Here's what he does. He uncovers their sin. He says to them, I'm Joseph. And they have a hard time believing it until he uncovers the sin. He says, I'm Joseph, the one you sold into slavery. Because this was the hidden sin that they had kept a secret from everybody for 22 years. And what Joseph does, which is so freeing. And if you've ever had a secret sin that you've finally confessed or finally has been brought out into the open, you know the feeling. He he I, he uncovers the sin. He names it. The secret sin that has kept them alienated from their father, alienated from the Lord, at odds with one another for 22 years, has now been uncovered and named. So he uncovers their sin. And then, secondly, he forgives them completely. He forgives his brothers. He says, don't be angry with yourselves. Don't be angry with yourselves that you sold me here because God sent me here before you to preserve my to preserve life. He says, this wasn't all you're doing. God was at work behind the scenes orchestrating all of this. He used your poor decisions, your jealousy, your anger, your, anger, your bitterness. He used it all to send me here so that, so that through my life, other lives could be saved. He unreservedly forgives his brothers. That's amazing. But then there's more. He then removes their guilt. Remember what he does. As he's sending them back up to Canaan to go get their dad... Uh, Joseph tells his brothers, don't quarrel on the way. Don't quarrel on the way. Meaning, I've already forgiven you. Which means there's no need to cast aspersions on anybody else. Because I have freely and fully already forgiven you. Your guilt has been dealt with. Don't, Don't bring it up anymore. Move forward. Go get dad. Bring him back. The best of the land of Egypt will be before you so he reconciles with his brothers then what happens the second thing he does is he reunites with his dad is my mic cutting in and out no just feels like it to me okay second thing he does is he re- he reunites with his dad uh the brothers return to canaan with loaded down donkeys full of grain fresh clothes and then the the wagons from egypt and when the brothers come and tell jacob joseph's still alive They can't believe it. He can't believe it. The son who was lost to him for 22 years and who he had presumed was dead was alive. But he again, he didn't believe it. He couldn't believe these sons. He knew their character. But finally, the wagons convinced him. Oh, no. The best of the wagons of Egypt are here. They convinced him. And so Jacob responds by doing a couple things as well. First of all, he begins by worshiping the Lord. He goes to Beersheba where Isaac had built an altar. And he worships the Lord. He sacrifices to the Lord there. So he worships the Lord. Second, he moves with haste. He loads up his family and he starts the long travel up to Egypt. Uh, All of them move real quickly to get up into Egypt. And then, when he gets up into Egypt, he's overcome with gratitude. Absolutely overcome with with gratitude. As he's making his way to Egypt, Joseph, who's in Egypt, starts making his way down to Goshen. Which is where um, Jacob was going to be. And we read verse, chapter 46, verse 29, we're told Joseph presented himself to Jacob and he fell on his neck and he wept on his neck a good while. Just completely overcome. They're completely overcome with emotion. And Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I have seen your face and I know that you're alive. Now look at the joy that permeates that scene. When God restored Joseph to Jacob, you know what Jacob experienced? He experienced a foretaste of resurrection life. A foretaste of resurrection joy. This joy just permeates this scene. The son who was lost is restored to his father and joy permeates that scene. Let me say something here. Um for those of you who have lost children in the Lord the joy that permeates this scene will one day be yours again it will one day be yours again because Christ died and he rose again and he defeats death your child like Joseph is alive and is awaiting your return he's awaiting your return and you will embrace and you will shed tears of joy and gratitude over the resurrection life that is true i don't know if you know martin luther he lost a daughter uh, early in life she was i think 6 and he writes in his journal he's broken hearted about it he writes in his journal and I cry every time I think about it. He says, I will embrace my daughter once again. He says, I will see, the, the, I will see joy dance in her eyes once again. Because the resurrection is true, this joy right here, it will be yours if you've lost a child in the Lord. You see, you, you don't fully understand the gospel until the gospel makes you weep with joy. You may have mental assent to it, but if it hasn't exploded in your heart so that you realize the gospel is so good, it's so amazing. The worst things in my life will give way to the best things in my life. That's what the gospel's saying to you. You know what it does for you? By the way, in the midst of that, all of that pain, it provides deep consolation in the present and it provides tremendous hope for the future. So Joseph, he reconciles with his brothers. He reunites with his dad. And then lastly, what we saw is he resettles Israel. Joseph brings the people of Israel, 70 in all, which as we talked about was the number of totality. He brings 70 in all and he settles them in the land of Goshen. And the people of Egypt, while the famine was happening, they were losing their possessions because they had to buy grain. They were losing their property because they had to buy grain. During the, during the famine, they were, they were losing everything. They were lost, losing their freedom. They became indentured servants. All the while, the people of Israel, they gained the best property. They gained a multitude of possessions and they were growing prosperous as a people. They were, they were being fruitful and multiplying is what we read. Look at chapter 47. Skip down to verse 27. Skip down to verse 27. Chapter 47. Chapter 47, verse 27. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen. And they gained possessions in it. And they and were fruitful and they multiplied greatly. So the Lord is completely blessing this embryonic nation as they settle in Egypt. His presence is with them. And he is, through Egypt, providing for them and prospering them. Now, as we pick up the story, beginning in verse 28 of chapter 47, you need to know that the famine at this point is a thing of the past. Um, Egypt has returned to normalcy. The fertile um, Nile Delta region where Joseph had settled his family is booming once again. There are bumper crops after bumper crops. And it was during this time after living in the land for 17 years, that Jacob makes preparations to pass away. Because he knows that soon his his days are up. And so by the end of the text, we will see both Jacob passes away and Joseph will pass away. And so we're going to work verses 28 in chapter 47 all the way through the end of the book. And uh, we'll see how Jacob prepares to die. So let's jump in. Verse 28 in chapter 47. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. Uh, there's some some symmetry there because Joseph lived under Jacob's care for the first 17 years of his life. And now for the last 17 years of Jacob's life, he lives under the care of Joseph. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life were 147. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me die or let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt And bury me in the burying place, in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, and he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. And then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Or someone's, some of your translations will say he bowed himself upon the head of his staff, either way. So what happens here is Joseph calls him in, or Jacob calls Joseph in and makes him promise. That's the hand under the thigh bit. Aren't you glad that in our day we do promises with just a simple handshake? Um, in those days you put your hand under a thigh and in other, depending on the, uh, the promise, in some places it was a little more intimate than even under the thigh. Um, so he says, make a promise to you, to me that you're not going to bury me in, in Egypt. I want to be buried with my family. And here's the deal. I don't think that's mere sentimentalism. Um, I don't think he's saying, I want to be buried in the family graveyard. What it is, I think, is an act of faith. It's an act of faith. Because when Jacob was leaving Canaan, when he went to Beersheba to worship the Lord, as he was going to Egypt to be reunited with Joseph, he worships the Lord, and the Lord says to him, I myself will go down with you into Egypt, and I myself will also bring you up again. And so Jacob is saying, the plot of land... That Abraham purchased. Is the down payment on the promised land. Is the down payment on the land of Canaan. That Abraham was promised. And and my descendants are buried there. And I'm holding on to that promise. So don't bury me in Egypt. Because I'm holding on to that promise. Don't bury me here. Because I believe in some mysterious way. That God's going to give all of the promised land to us. And I'm living face-to-face forward in faith, and I'm dying trusting the Lord completely. And so by faith, Israel stakes his claim in the promised land. Stakes his, his claim in the promised land, not in the best of Egypt. Remember, because they had the best land in Egypt, he's saying, that's not where Israel's to be. I'm to be where the, the Lord's promise is. I'm to be in the center of the Lord's will. His will for us is in, is in Canaan. So he prepares to die. By spending time, notice first, by giving instruction to his son. And now, in chapter 48, he engages his grandsons. And what he does with his grandsons is he reminds them of the Lord's faithfulness. He pulls his grandchildren in, and he spiritually invests in them. He gives them testimony... And here's what he does, and it's important to note. He gives them testimony, not of his faithfulness. Because if you just tell people how great you are and how faithful you are, that puts a gigantic burden upon them. And by the way, you probably weren't all that faithful to begin with. So he doesn't talk about his faithfulness to the Lord. What he does is he talks about the Lord's faithfulness to him. The emphasis is on how faithful the Lord has been, which means you can trust the Lord as well. You want to leave a a legacy for your kids and your grandkids? Don't talk about how faithful you were. Heavens, no. Don't don't do that. But what you do want to talk about is you want to remind them and you want to rejoice in how the Lord has been faithful to you. That's what you want to impart to your kids. And that's what Jacob does here. Look at verse 1. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz. That's Bethel. Luz is the older name for Bethel. Appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful. And multiply you and I will make of you a a company of peoples and I will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. So Jacob, he's looking back on his life and he's referring there to Bethel when, uh, and we read about this when, when Jacob saw a staircase and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the staircase and the Lord came all the way down and spoke to Jacob and promised Jacob offspring and land. And now he looks at Joseph and and he says, the Lord has blessed me in the past and now his blessing is upon you. And he continues, verse 5, he says, and now your two sons, your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. He says, I'm adopting these two. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. So these he, he's adopting these two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. They're going to be adopted into the family of Jacob. They're going to be counted among Jacob's children because um, Reuben and Simeon are about to be passed over. Uh, they're about to be passed over. We'll see why in a second. But they're going to be passed over because of their sins. And so he's giving a double portion to Joseph. Joseph was not the firstborn, but he's giving the double portion to his sons here. Uh, he's, these two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. So these two sons are being adopted into Jacob's family. Verse 6. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Paddan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way. When there was some, still some distance to go to, uh, Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath. That is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? Um, it's not, it's not that he doesn't know who these sons are. This is part of the adoption practice. This is, this is a, a legal, this is a formal do- adoption practice. It's much in the same way uh, if you've ever officiated a wedding or if you've ever given away your daughter at a wedding, the pastor will ask, who gives this woman to this man? It's not that the pastor doesn't know who the dad is, but it's part of the marriage practice, right? Uh, and so this is part of the adoption practice. He says, well, whose sons are these? And so Jacob responds, verse 9, or Joseph responds, verse 9, Joseph said to his father, they are my sons. "...whom God has given me here." And Jacob said, "...bring them to me, please, that I may bless them." Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, "...I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also." He's talking, again, the faithfulness of the Lord. And then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand towards Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and he brought them near him. Joseph, he, he's like a stage dad here. He's uh, posturing his voice. Because he knows that, that um, Jacob is about to bless them. And he wants the older son to be on the right hand. The hand of blessing. And so he's posturing them just like a, a stage dad. He's positioning like a stage dad would. Because he knows a blessing's going to come. And he wants the oldest son, Manasseh, to receive the bulk of the blessing. And so he positions them. And then verse 14. And Israel stretched out his right hand. And laid it on the head of Ephraim who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands. For Manasseh was the firstborn. So Jacob reverses, (laughs) he just reverses Joseph's wishes here. And he places his right hand on the younger and his left hand on the older, signifying that once again, Uh, God's ways, God's sovereign grace override the human ways of social convention. He's saying, I will, remember, he's, he's, he's about to prophesy here. He's going to bless these boys. He's saying God's ways are not human's ways. And uh, once again, he will work through the younger rather than the older. And look at what, look at what happens. Verse 15. And he blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers, Abraham, and Isaac walked the God who has been my shepherd all my life, long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys and let and in them, let my name be carried on and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. Let them grow up in the faith is what he's saying and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. So he's, as he's blessing these boys, he's also recounting the Lord's faithfulness. Look at what he does. He says, he says, the Lord was the Lord in covenant with my fathers. And then more than that, the Lord is the God who has been my shepherd all the days of my life. He's the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Again, he's highlighting the Lord's faithfulness to his people. Verse 17. When Joseph saw his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. Um, do you have an aging dad and sometimes he does things that still displeases you? No show of hands. But sometimes you'll you'll watch your dad do stuff when they're... Like my dad's 70, ooh, 75 now. And I'll see him do some things sometimes and I'm like, you know, you're doing this wrong. And it, there's a feeling of displeasure with it. Identify that feeling because that's what's happening here. He looks at me and says, Dad... You're doing this all wrong. My my youngest son is over here. You're putting your right hand on my youngest son. That's not the way it's supposed to be. You got to put you got to put your your right hand on my oldest son. And Look at what look what happens here. Um Look at verse 18. And Joseph said to his father, "Not this way, my father. <laughs> Since this one is the firstborn, put your right hand on his head." But his father refused and he said, I know my, I know my son. I know. He says, I know exactly what I'm doing. He shall, talking about the boys, he shall become a people and he shall also be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you, Israel, will pronounce blessings, saying, God, make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. And again, um, Jacob saying the blessing of the Lord isn't based on natural rights. It's not based on status. It's based on God's grace. It's based on the Lord's grace, the Lord's will. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh, and then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die. But God will be with you, and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites, with my sword and with my bow. And so Jacob, after spending time with Joseph, and now after spending time with Joseph's sons, reminding them of the Lord's faithfulness, he's now going to meet with Joseph and Joseph's brothers, the 12 brothers, uh, or the 11 brothers. So look at chapter 49. Then, how much time do I got? Oh, boy. Let's get going. Then Jacob called his brothers and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what may happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. So Israel begins to prophesy under the Lord's leading on what's going to happen to the tribes of Israel, to the to the uh, tribes that descend from the twelve ton, twelve from the twelve sons, and he arranges them um, by order of the mother. So it begins with Leah, and then it goes to uh, Bilhah and Zilpah, and then lastly to Rachel's t- two sons. So because it starts with Leah, it starts with the firstborn, which is Reuben. Look at verse three, Reuben. again, these are what's going to happen, the tribes that are going to come from these 12 sons. Reuben, you are my firstborn. And just that alone, everybody that should fill a person with pride. He says, Reuben, you're my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. And then the shoe drops, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Um, Reuben loses his birthright. Completely loses his birthright. Because remember back in Genesis chapter 35. Do you remember what happened? He tried to usurp power. He tried to usurp uh, the power from Jacob. And become the head of the family. By sleeping with one of Jacob's uh, handmaidens. Bilhah. And so the Lord through uh, Jacob removes his mantle of leadership. So instead of receiving a blessing, he actually receives an anti-blessing. And he says, you're, you're not going to inherit any of the blessing. And it's actually a good thing that he does that, because it saves the young nation from reckless leadership. This is a young nation. This guy should have been in charge of it, but he's completely unstable. And so he removes him from leadership. Verse 5. And Simeon and Levi, their group together, because these were the ones way back in genesis thirty four um, if you recall, they were the instigators of the violence, instigators of the bloodshed against the people of shechem they were they took unnecessary revenge when Dinah was defiled, and in fulfillment of jacob 's words the very last part, he says, "I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel." Uh, these words are fulfilled um because the tribe of Simeon virtually disappears from the biblical narrative uh, after the conquest. And the tribe of Levi, they actually later they redeem themselves, but they are scattered amongst Israel. They become uh, the priests. And so they don't have any inheritance of the land. And so what Jacob's just done is he's, he's announced the three oldest sons won't inherit any of the blessings. And now he turns his attention to Judah. The brother who was willing to sacrifice himself. The brother who was willing to take the place and bear the burden of Benjamin so that Benjamin could go free. And it's to Judah that preeminence comes. Look at verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son you have gone up he stooped down he crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares rouse him he's saying judah is going to become strong and majestic like a lion and then he goes on he says verse 10 the scepter shall not depart from judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him Shall be the obedience of the people of the peoples. You see, there in verse ten, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. In some of your translations, it will say, "The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he who comes, to whom it belongs." And it's a reference to first to David, and then later to Christ. To the one who it belongs. Meaning there's, this is going to be an eternal kingdom. One will come from Judah's line who will rule and reign and will bring peace to the nations. And his reign, we'll see in a second, his reign will usher in a golden age. Look at verse 11. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine. And his vestiture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine. And his teeth whiter than milk. He's saying there's such an abundance. uh, There's such an abundance that vines are going to be used as hitching posts. Would you put a donkey next to a vine that you have? No. Why? Well, because they would eat it all. They would trample it and eat it all. But there's going to be such an abundance that the the vines are going to be used as hitching posts. When this later comes... What that means is, there will no longer be the thorns and thistles. And by the sweat of your brow, which is a part of the curse. Go back to Genesis chapter 3. The thorns and the thistles of the earth will give way. And by the sweat of your brow, it will give way to an abundance of the best things. Absolute abundance. By the way, did you ever wonder why Jesus' first miracle that's recorded is turning water into wine? Right here. When the true ruler comes, there will be an abundance of wine. It's the sign of the Messianic age. And so Jesus' first miracle, he turns the water into wine. He's saying, Jacob's prophecy about the ruler to come, who will have all power and will bring peace, and who will usher in this age of abundance, this is what I'm doing now. This is why. This is why. Right here. Right here. Keep going. He switched, goes from Judah to Zebulon. Uh, verse 13, Zebulon shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a heaven, a haven for ships, and his border shall be, uh, Sidon. And Zebulon's allotted land doesn't reach, it, when you get into Judges and Joshua, Joshua's in Judges, it doesn't reach all the way to the shore, but it was near enough, both to the Mediterranean and to the Sea of Galilee, that it, it made it productive for seaborne trade. Verse 14, Issachar is a strong donkey. <laughs> Crouching between the sheepfolds, he saw a resting place that was good and that the land was pleasant. So he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Um This is Issachar. And the tribe of Issachar, they're mostly slighted. In the book of Judges, when you go into the book of Judges and you read it, um, they're not spoken of highly. They, like the other tribes, they didn't remove the Canaanites, nor did they subjugate them. But rather what they did is they became submissive to the Canaanites. They became submissive and effete to the Canaanites. Meaning that the Canaanites became Issachar's daddy, essentially. Um, They ruled over them. Verse, and now he switches to Dan, the tribe of Dan. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that the rider falls backwards. He's saying Dan's going to be small, but it will be assertive and it will strike. And then verse 18, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. He's thinking about his kids' lives, and he's saying, Lord, I'm, I'm waiting for your salvation. Bring it about. Verse 19. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Um, the blessing is, is that Gad's going to lead a kind of a hard life. They'll lead a troubled life, but, but again, they will strike back at its enemies. Verse 19. I'm sorry, verse 20. Asher's food shall be rich. And he shall yield royal delicacies. And you can just imagine Asher, as he's around his dad and he's hearing this, he's like, yes. Thank you, Lord. Naphali, verse 21. Naphali is a doe let loose. Meaning they're going to have freedom. They'll be a freed people. That bears beautiful fawns. They're going to breed strong and true. And now he turns to Joseph. Joseph is a fruitful bough. A fruitful bough by a spring. His branches will run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the Mighty One. By the God of your Father who will help you. By the Almighty who will bless you. With blessings of heaven above. Blessings of the deep that crouches beneath. Blessings of the breast and of the womb. The blessing of your Father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents. Up. To the bounties of the everlasting hills, may they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart, who was set apart from his brothers. So Jacob says of Joseph, the one who came from barren Rachel, that he will be the most fertile of all the tribes. And he promises them this comprehensive, comprehensive blessing. And now Jacob turns to the last son, the twelfth and youngest son, Benjamin. Verse twenty-seven. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, in the morning devouring the prey, in that evening dividing the spoil. He says Benjamin will be like a wolf, and he will be so productive he will share his prey. And again, if you read the book of Judges, uh, you will see that the tribe of Benjamin has a high reputation for bravery and skill. So everything that Jacob predicts here, you continue on in the scripture and you see it comes true. He blesses his sons, and then verse twenty-eight. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. And then he commanded them and said to them, "I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the field that is in the or in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite." to possess as a burying place there they buried abraham and sarah his wife there they buried isaac and rebecca his wife and there i buried leah the field that the cave that is in uh, the field and the cave that that is in it were bought from the hittites when jacob finished commanding his sons he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people So the life of Jacob, which has stretched over half the book of Genesis from chapter 25, has seen the family through moments of trust and distrust, moments of trust and betrayal, moments of sterility and fertility, feast and famine, separation and reunion. And as he takes his last breaths, he does not waver in his faith. He doesn't waver. He recounts the Lord's faithfulness in in the past, which gives him the strength to move forward all the way in through death. And he looks forward and he says, Israel's destiny is in the promised land. Now, verse 1, then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And what happens in verses 2 through 14, we won't look at them for lack of time, but what happens is Joseph goes to Pharaoh, sends some messengers to Pharaoh and says, my father is, has passed on. He's passed away. Can I take him and bury him in the family's land back in Canaan? And Pharaoh gives him the okay. He says, "Yeah, go." And he, they, they mourn for seventy days. They take him down to Canaan, uh, along with with Joseph. Uh, Pharaoh sends his servants and then his brothers carry Jacob's body back, in the cave, uh, back into Canaan, and they bury him in the cave that Abraham purchased all those years ago. And then they return to Egypt. The brothers do. They return to Egypt, and what happens is Joseph's brothers start to think that the forgiveness that Joseph extended to them was contingent on the fact that Jacob was still alive. And so instead of resting in and rejoicing over the forgiveness that was extended to them by Joseph all those years ago, they become fearful. Look at verse uh, 15 in chapter 50. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us, and will pay us back for all the evil that we had that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression this is probably a made up story by the way. These guys right here, they uh, there's no record of this that that uh Jacob said this. So they sent a message to Joseph saying your father gave this command before he died. They're lying to Joseph. Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now They say, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And when Joseph heard this, he wept when they spoke to him. He couldn't believe this. He weeps over the fact that his brothers think they have to work off their debt to him. They're saying, we'll become your servants. And he's saying, don't you understand? My forgiveness is completely free. There's nothing you can do. You don't need to do anything. And we look at that and we think, well, how foolish are these brothers? Let me ask you. Have you ever done the same thing with the Lord? The Lord's forgiveness is free and full. Has there ever been moments when you're rummaging through your past that you think, oh, I gotta work this off? No, 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 Fred. It's complete. You have been completely forgiven. And that's, that's what Joseph's saying here. Look at verse 19. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt. He and his father's house. Joseph lived a hundred and ten years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation, the children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, who were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die. Now, um, some um somebody asked me this morning before church, who are these brothers that he's talking about here? Is he talking about his, his own biological brothers, his older brothers? Maybe. He could be talking to his older brothers. Maybe some of them outlive him. Um, or he could be talking... The, the brethren of Israel, the people of Israel who have descended from the tribes. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore, he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then, then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, they embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And with those words, the book of Genesis comes to a close. And we'll do the same. Okay, here's what I want to do. I want to talk real briefly. Oh gosh. I want to talk by, um, by talking about living wisely and dying radiantly, living wisely and dying radiantly, because so much of this section covers The preparation of death for Jacob. And because we're told in scriptures, we're told, Lord, teach us to number our days so that we may get a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days so that we may get a heart of wisdom. Because as we reflect upon the brevity of life, the brevity of our lives. Scripture elsewhere in James chapter 4 describes life as a vapor, as a mist that quickly disappears. It appears for a moment, and then it vanishes. And as we meditate upon that, it gives us perspective to live wisely and to die radiantly. So a life that is lived wisely and dies radiantly is a life where these things take place. And they come right out of this text. Here's the first one. A life that uh, is lived wisely and dies uh, radiantly is one where you acknowledge your regrets, you acknowledge your regrets, but you're not paralyzed by them. You acknowledge your regrets, but you're not paralyzed. You're, you acknowledge them, but you're not paralyzed by them. I was reading an article this week by Paul Tripp. And in it, he says, when we're young, we're like astronauts. We're like astronauts. We're looking to unknown worlds. We're looking to explore it's a, it's a time of exploration and discovery. And we're always thinking about, we're going to go conquer this thing next. We're going to go do this thing more. We're going to go do this thing next. It's a time to go where you've never been before. A time to explore new places. A time to do things that you've never done before. That's astronaut age. That's, the, that's when you're young. But as you age, you move from being an astronaut to becoming an archaeologist. Is that not true? You move from being an astronaut, there's worlds out there I gotta explore, to becoming an archaeologist. And an archaeologist, as you're older, you begin to look back as much, if not more, than you look forward. And as an archaeologist, you, you dig up your past. And sometimes, when you rummage through your past, you dig up things, that brings you regret. Is that not true? Yeah, that's true. You wish you had done things differently. You wish you had been a better parent. You wish you hadn't gone down that path that led to heartache. You wish you had worked harder at your job. You wish you had forgiven that person before they passed away. The older you get, the more regrets you have. And if anyone would have had regrets, it would have been Jacob. Jacob. It would have been Jacob. Because it was his parental favoritism that led to the the dysfunction and the, the disunity within this family. Well, why wasn't he paralyzed by his regrets? Well, we saw it in Genesis chapter 35. Because he had an encounter with God himself. That's the story where he wrestles all night long. He wrestles all night with God and he came out of it a changed man. The Lord's grace had been given to him. And so his regrets, why they were real, and while your regrets are very much real, they don't paralyze you. They don't have to paralyze you. What they do instead, when your regrets have been touched by the Lord's grace, it produces humility and wisdom. When your regrets are touched by the Lord's grace, it produces humility and wisdom. And you know what's needed in our world more than anything else? It is humble and wise Christians who love the Lord's grace and who extend it to others freely. Who don't look at others and judge them by their mistakes, but recognize I've been down there. I've been down that path before may not be the exact same path. It may not be the exact same choice, but I know exactly where they're at. And I'm going to extend the Lord's grace to them. That's the type of person that is so desperately needed in our world today. Humble, wise Christians who love the Lord's grace and freely extend it to others. So you want to live wisely and die radiantly? Acknowledge your regrets, but don't be paralyzed by them. Because if you're Christian's, If you're a Christian, the Lord's grace has covered them completely. And hopefully it's produced in you humility and wisdom. Is that true? Here's a second one. How to live wisely and die radiantly. See yourself as a sojourner. See yourself as a sojourner and invest your time, talent, and treasure in in the next generation. In Genesis chapter 47, when Joseph is, or when Jacob, sorry, when Jacob is first brought to Egypt, he comes before the king of Egypt. He comes before the Pharaoh and the king asks him, how old are you? And in verse nine, Jacob says this. He says, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. A sojourner. He sees himself as a sojourner. A sojourner is one who recognizes that they're a temporary resident. And where they're at now is not their permanent home. And Jacob realizes that. And so he calls his sons and his grandsons. He knows he's going home. He calls his sons and his grandsons in. And he tells them of the Lord's faithfulness over them. He tells them of the Lord's faithfulness. He prophesizes over them, prays over them, and then he blesses them. And when you have a sojourner mindset, you know what it does? It frees you from the American dream. It frees you from the American dream of bigger, better, and more. Because you don't need bigger and better and more because you've already, you're already your identity already rests in the grace that's been given to you by Christ. There becomes a certain detachment from the material things of this world because this world is not your home. And it reprioritizes how you spend yourself because there's an ongoing mission of God that you're called to be a part of. And because I'm a sojourner, I'm more free to use my talents, not just on myself, but for the good of the gospel. The more free I am to use my treasure, investing in the ongoing gospel work, the more willing I am to use my most precious commodity, time. The more willing I am to use my most precious commodity, time, investing in the next generation who will carry on kingdom work, while I'm long gone, while I'm enjoying the blessings of heaven. So you're, you're way more free. If you have, if you have a sojourner mindset, you're, you're made, you're way more free to actually live the life you've always wanted to live. So let me ask you, are you an older Christian? You don't need to answer that. I can look out and just determine that by myself. <laughs> that was a rhetorical question. Um, Are you an older Christian? Someone who's rounding third base and you're heading home? <laughs> Listen, those who live on and live well, they have something to live for. Those who live on and live well, they have something to live for and the gospel gives you that. See yourself as a sojourner and invest your time, your, t- your treasure and your talents into the next generation who will carry forth the gospel work. Yeah? So, You want to live wisely and die radiantly. Acknowledge your regrets, but don't be paralyzed by them. See yourself as a sojourner and invest yourself in the next generation. And then lastly, live with the hope of resurrection life. Live with the hope of resurrection life. And when I say hope, I don't mean in the, like, I I hope I'm going to win the lottery today. I mean, in the biblical sense, the confident expectation of future blessing based upon what Jesus has has done. So live in the hope of resurrection life. The prophecy that Jacob foretold about the lion... From the tribe of Judah, who would defeat his enemies and rule and reign forevermore and would bring peace to the earth, would bring utter peace, has been fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. He has completely fulfilled it. Well, who is his enemy? Sin and death. The wages of sin is death. And Jesus, from the tribe of Judah, what he does is he comes And he lives perfectly. He dies righteously. and He rises triumphantly. As the king. He's the most counter cultural king. In all of human history. Because every other king says. I'm the king. Give your life for mine. But this king says. I'll give my life for you. And so while he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's also the lamb. That was slain. He takes the full brunt of death so that you, when you come to him, you just experience the shadow of it. Donald uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse was a Presbyterian minister back in Philadelphia in probably the mid-60s. And he was driving his kids to his wife, their mother's funeral. And his youngest child was struggling with all of it, just all of it. And so Barnhouse was trying to help his young child. Explain what what death was all about. And so he's driving his kids and he says, do you see that truck? And they say, yeah. He says, do you see the shadow of that truck? And They say, yeah. He says, would you rather be hit by the truck or by the shadow? And the young child, the youngest child says by the shadow. And Barnhill said, yeah, because Jesus was hit by the truck of death. Your mother only had to go through the shadow. You experienced just the shadow of it. Jesus absorbed the full brunt of death and then came out on the other side. You know what that means for you? You no longer need to fear death. And you know what that does? When you really think about it? The fact that you just experienced the shadow of it. Jesus has already absorbed it all for you. He's came out of the other side and he's given you resurrection life. You experience just the shadow of it. You know what that does? It completely frees you To live and to love and to pour yourself out for the sake of the kingdom. If if death has been completely vanquished and it has, you experience just the shadow of it, that frees you to completely live. It frees you to completely love. It frees you to pour yourself out for the lives of others. And the reality is, it enables you to live wisely and to die radiantly. Amen? Let me pray. I'll let you go. Father, why don't you stand? You've been sitting a long time. Father, we uh, we thank, first of all, we thank you for the book of Genesis. For the past year, Lord, we have been in this book, and it has shaped so much of our thinking. And we thank you that it points to the great reality that one has came from the tribe of Judah, And he has defeated death. And he gives to us, anyone who puts repentant faith in him, resurrection life. Freeing us from the shackles of sin and death. And enabling us to live abundantly free and full lives under the direction of the king. And so Father, we pray that as we go back into our homes with our families this afternoon. We go back into uh, our vocations tomorrow. That the good news of the gospel, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection life, that these realities would fill our hearts with joy. It would enable us to serve the needs of this world with great joy, Lord. It would enable us to speak forth of the gospel when opportunities present itself. That we would love and we would live like Christ into the places in which you've called us. We trust you for this. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.